Hello and welcome to the Lastude Law Immigration Podcast. This is a new accessible and hopefully monthly podcast in which we're going to be discussing the trends, news and issues in the fields of immigration, free movement and asylum. Uh, before we get started, just a little disclaimer, this podcast is for information and discussion only. This is not formal legal advice about immigration and should not be viewed as such. If you do require legal assistance with immigration, visit the Law Society website where they can provide you with further information on how to locate a solicitor. My name is Alex Wright. I'm a trainee solicitor at Latitude Law in Manchester and I'm joined by two of my colleagues, Gemma Wiley and Shara Pledger. Hello. Okay, we're going to be starting with a brief update on immigration news, just stuff we've noticed in the past month that we think is of interest. And then we're going to be moving on to our main topic. This month we're going to be discussing the general election and the party's immigration policies and the run-up to it, because obviously it's been quite um, a hotly contested topic in the past few months. Um, In future podcasts, we're hoping to have guests on, answer your queries and things like that. Um, If you have anything you'd like to ask us that you'd like to be addressed on a future podcast, you can contact us on our website. Uh, We have an inquiry form there through um, our email account, so info at latitudelaw.com or on Twitter where we are at Latitude Law. We're going to start with immigration news where we'll each be discussing in turn something we've noticed in the past month relating to immigration in the UK or just a news item or some development that we think is of interest. Um, So we'll start with Shara. Thanks Alex. So today I'm going to be talking a little bit about Tier 1 Investor which is a specific section of the immigration rules designed for high net worth individuals who would like to bring money to the UK but not necessarily have active business interests here. Now, um, most people will be aware that there was quite a big shift in Tier 1 Investor towards the end of last year, which was a change from requiring £1 million in investment up to £2 million in investment funds. But a change that's just very recently come in that people may well not be aware about um, is a new requirement um, where Tier 1 Investors are now obliged to have a UK-regulated bank account in the UK. So this can be difficult for people. Depending on where they're coming from, there are certain nations in the world where the UK is quite suspicious of money coming out of those countries or just simply won't allow money to flow out of those countries. And whereas before, Tier 1 investors have been able to at least get a visa under their belt before trying to make arrangements to move their money to the UK, this will no longer be the option for them. They will be required to have this bank account set up in advance. So... It's just something for people to bear in mind if they are considering a Tier 1 investor application in the future that they really need to perhaps shift their priorities in terms of how they go about preparing that. Um, Just one word of um, encouragement though, a a UK regulated bank account isn't just restricted to a bank thankfully, it's um, any regulated financial institution that's overseen by the Financial Conduct Authority so that could also cover um, all different kinds of investment vehicles in the UK or wealth management vehicles in the UK. So there is hopefully a bit of flexibility that will help people out but it is just um, a shift really in the focus of where that money is coming from and it is something that needs to be borne in mind before an application is um, is planned or begun. So it's just really an extra step it's not going to be too challenging to get that in place if you really want it. Well it depends on where you're coming from really um, as I say there are certain countries uh, Iran's a really obvious example I suppose where you've got financial um, sanctions that are imposed on that country and Um, Something that we'll be talking about probably later in the podcast uh, about kind of restrictions on people opening bank accounts in the UK. 
on the one side you've got the government kind of restricting people's access to open a UK bank account but now you've got this requirement completely on the side of the fence before you even got a visa about a requirement to open a UK bank account so those two things won't necessarily marry up very well and it just depends whether practically speaking some individuals are going to struggle to get a UK bank account before they've actually got their visa to come here and that will actually just completely bar them from tier one investor. So it's just worth doing your research as to whether you can get something set up in the UK before you go down that route? Absolutely, yeah. There are lots and lots of different wealth management vehicles that have got specific um, programmes or schemes that are specific for Tier 1 investor. So it may well be worthwhile doing some market research and finding out exactly how you're going to manage your wealth in the UK before you think about looking at Tier 1 investor. Okay, fair Mm -hmm. enough. Okay, um, I'm going to be doing the next topic, which is we're going to be looking at something that came in actually just earlier this week, which is the immigration NHS surcharge. Um, there's been a lot of conversation about whether uh, migrants are a drain on the NHS or, too, or put, put too much pressure on public funds. So what has been introduced is something whereby anyone applying for limited leave or any sort of temporary status in the UK is going to be obliged to make a payment to the NHS at the time they're applying for further leave to allow them to have access to the NHS for the duration of their time in the UK. For students, that is going to be £150 a year, and for all other temporary migrants, that is going to be £200 a year. And the entire amount has to be paid up front, and it gets rounded up to the nearest six months. So if you're coming to the UK on, say, six months as a fiancé, you'll have to pay £100 up front, and if you're applying for, say, two and a half years leave to remain, um, for any other reason, you'll have to pay a grand total of £500, so that's... £200 for each year and then £100 for the half year, so it's quite an expensive addition to fees that I know Jen will be discussing later are already increasing. There are some exceptions to this rule, for example Australian and New Zealand migrants will not need to pay the immigration health surcharge, whereas migrants who come to the UK specifically for the purpose of contributing to the economy who already have work set up and will be paying national insurance, for example those under uh, Tier 1 and 2, will still have to pay this charge. But there is one exception to that, which is the intercompany transfer on tier two. So people coming from overseas company to work for that same company in the UK are exempt. I know, Shari, you have some more information on that. Yeah, um, tier two intercompany transfer, um, in some respects, is a slightly controversial route. Um, It's a helpful route for businesses because obviously there are lots of companies in the UK who have got overseas interests as well or who are perhaps subsidiaries of overseas companies. And it's of vital importance to the UK that you're able to have good business links um, with you know, all different kind of countries and companies that aren't necessarily based here. And what intercompany transfer allows you to do is to sort of swap your employees, transfer them amongst your different bases. But intercompany transfer can be very beneficial to people. There is no requirement for an English language test, which is required normally under other sponsored worker routes. Um, and also there are the potentials to have quite favourable tax implications depending on exactly how payroll is set up and now this Immigration health surcharge is another example of intercompany transfer migrants potentially being given slightly beneficial treatment. Um, so there is just perhaps the potential for that to give a, a bit of a bad taste in the mouth of yeah, the it, it, it is slightly odd that anybody else coming here who's specifically coming here for work mm. to get a job is going to have to pay this, but this one route. Yeah, I mean, the thing about intercompany transfer is that it's broken down into lots of different subcategories. And so if you were perhaps just looking at people who were on the short-term route, that might make sense. But people on the long-term route who could be coming here for up to five years, it does seem a little slightly bit. contrary to, mm-hmm. yeah, to the common sense of where this is coming from. Um, we should also point out that this also does apply to anybody who currently has limited leave to remain in the UK. If you are going to be doing your extension applications and you've not quite got to the point where you can apply for settlement yet, 
you are going to have to pay this charge in the future. So it's something you do need to look out for when making future applications. Uh, Gemma, um, you, sorry, you wanted to add something? Yeah, just a couple of points. Um, I mean, even if migrants hold private medical insurance, um, that still won't cover um, the surcharge and they still are required to pay the NHS surcharge. A second point as well is that it does apply to applications under the rules and those outside of the rules, so discretionary applications, um, applicants applying for further leave outside the rules still. So Gemma, you're one of the first people at Latitude Law to actually try out this, this uh, new option which came in on Monday. So what's the process for actually getting um, your health surcharge paid as part of your application? Yes, yeah, so there is a dedicated website, um, Standard Government site. Um, you register an account and you're able to purchase the surcharge from that site. You have to kind of input your personal information, um, the grant of leave that you are applying for, and the site will calculate um, the, the amount that you, you are required to pay. Um, after payment, you'll get a reference number, and that reference number must then be used on your application on um, one of the very first pages of the application, it does contain um, a question on there. It's worth pointing out that the um, Immigration Health Surcharge um, is refundable if your application is unsuccessful, yeah. mm -hmm. but um, if for whatever reason you get your leave to remain and you decide to leave the UK early or you don't complete your leave, you do not get any of that back. No. Okay. Um, now Gemma, what was the topic you wanted to bring up? Um, the topic I wanted to mention was simply that the beginning of April, um, has seen new application forms and fees being introduced. So anyone submitting an application on or after the 6th of April must ensure that it is um, the most up-to-date version of the application form and that they are paying the correct fee. Most notably is the settlement application fee, which has actually risen by £499. It was previously £1,001, but it is now £1,500, so that is quite a big That's jump. a really considerable yeah. one, because normally we expect them to go up just a little bit, and most of them have gone yeah, up an amount, but that one pounds. is... Yeah, it, it is very expensive, especially if there are more than one applicant applying. Because now, as of, when was it they changed it, all dependents were paying the same amount. fees, yeah. aren't they? So all dependents are going to have to pay exactly the same as the main applicant. Yeah. It makes you wonder whether um, the big increase for the settlement application is reflective of the fact that those people are not liable to the immigration health surcharge. So are they in fact just raising those, mm. those well, funds in other ways? I mean, it's not a dissimilar amount, is it? I mean, they're no, going to expect most people to... Yeah, most people will be... Moving on to naturalise at some point. ...liable to £500 in the immigration health surcharge and... 499 is the increase in settlements who don't have to pay the immigration health surcharge. Delightfully coincidental. Yeah, that's a yes. <laughs> okay, um, thanks for that. We're going to be moving on to our main topic now. We're going to be discussing, um, because it's a general election year and we're not too far away from the vote, we're going to be talking through the main political parties and what their positions are on immigration. Obviously, it's something that's come up a lot lately, particularly in the leaders' debate, um, in the news. You can't really escape from the topic of immigration being a really key point, particularly with the, the rise in popularity and prominence of the UK Independence Party. Uh, just to let you know, we're only really going to be discussing the English and Welsh parties because Latitude Law um, only provides legal advice um, in, uh, in the remainder of the UK, not including Scotland, so we won't be discussing the SNP. The Greens also didn't make it particularly easy to research this section. All the other parties have nicely, clearly laid out sections on immigration available on their website. Um, the Greens were a little bit more challenging to get clear information on their policies. We will be discussing them as well, but not necessarily as formally as the other parties. 
no intention of bias, it's just they did make it very easy to get hold of their information. Okay, so we're going to take it in turns to sort of discuss the main parties and have a look at the key policies. We're going to be looking at whether these policies are realistic, whether they really differ from, whether, from what we have now, and how they follow on from recent changes to the law. So we're going to try and myth-bust things a little bit and sort of set out what realistically the parties can do and whether their changes are actually pragmatic or sensible. Okay, so the first part we're going to be looking at are the Conservatives and Shara's going to be talking to us about them. Thanks, Alex. Um, with the Conservatives, it's quite an interesting one to look at because obviously um, in the coalition they already have um, the power and the influence to put all of their ideas into practice. So the Conservatives really have um, a big focus on kind of caps and restrictions and, and targets, and in their case at the moment, missed targets. Um, <laughs> but uh, they, they like to try and control immigration, that's kind of their big focus, controlling immigration. So um, clamping down on what they call benefits tourism and health tourism is a, a big part of that and the immigration health surcharge that Alex previously discussed is obviously um, they're, they're kind of their key way of trying to um, attack the issue about health tourism. How much it is actually a problem is difficult to know, I think. Um, but this is certainly how they're going to try and lead when they, as we run up to mm -hmm. the election in terms of saying, well, we've actually tackled this problem. This is the measure that we've just brought in. So I think the timing of the immigration health surcharge is pretty significant, Again, significant. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> given how close we are to the election coming up. So that, that's kind of one of their big focuses. And the others is about cracking down on abuse, which is pretty much linked to benefits tourism and health tourism, but they just look at it in other ways. So... One of the big ones is about closing bogus colleges, um, which affects tier four sponsored students, um, but also has the effects obviously on tier two sponsored um, workers who are employed by these organisations and obviously the huge number of UK workers who are employed by these kinds of organisations. And one of the figures that I saw when I was looking uh, at information over the last couple of days was that they're, they're very proud, the government, of having closed down over 850 sham colleges in the last few years. Which um, is a huge amount. Is a, yeah, absolutely, a massively significant number. Um, but it's also just trying to bear in mind the number of students that would have been affected mm -hmm. in that step. Um, because obviously, each time you close down a college, that's always going to be students who have probably paid full year's course fees and are going to lose all of that, they're going to lose the opportunity that they had to, to study in the UK. The period of time you can study in the UK is capped, so if they lose their place at a college quite a long way into their course, it's always questionable whether they'll be able to actually transfer anyone else to continue. So it has a huge implication, not just for people working for colleges, but also for the students studying there. Um, and one of the other key focuses for the Conservatives is making it tougher for illegal immigrants to remain in the UK and this links to measures that were introduced by the Immigration Act 2014 which um, has been steadily sort of brought into force since last year which relates to restricting access to work, housing benefits, healthcare bank accounts and driving licences. Um, again this is when it then kind of links back to what I was talking about with two investors about how easy it is to open a bank account in the UK. So with all of these things it's quite difficult to know exactly what kind of effect they're going to have. Um, I would imagine that the politician's answer would be to say that they haven't been enforced for long enough yeah. for us to actually measure the kind of effect they're going to have. Um, but without doubt, they have already started to bite. And particularly in terms of access to things like housing, there were quite large-scale pilots that were rolled out over the West Midlands last year, etc. So it, it should be possible to, to see roughly what kind of effect that's going to have. Um, but obviously, net immigration continues to rise. And it's really whether or not the, the Conservatives are suggesting anything that's radically new, which I can't see that they are, that would make a big difference to that. So... 
it, at some point, people are going to have to stop and question if we're putting in all of these measures to make sure that the people coming here are genuine and the kind of people that we want here and immigration is still rising. Is immigration really the evil that we necessarily see it to be? Because there is the argument that whilst the Conservatives are placing caps and they are trying to restrict the numbers of immigrants coming into the UK, they're actually placing those caps in the areas that benefit the UK most from an economic perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the two, two general cap... Um, which has been in place for a long time, for a huge kind of number of months after that was introduced, you weren't actually seeing that the allocation each month for the number of workers who could come here was being used. So it sort of raised the question as to whether or not the cap was even necessary at all. That has changed in recent months, certainly that there are um, increased applications, but then I suppose that in itself kind of calls into question the measures that the Conservatives are introducing, they say, to reduce immigration because if the numbers are still on the increase then immigration is not going to reduce. Uh, one policy that I sort of noticed the Conservatives discussing during the election cycle is last year when you were sort of discussing some of the regulations they brought for deportation they've announced we've brought in this policy of deport first appeal later yeah. unless you can say there's going to show there's going to be some sort of serious irreversible harm um, to the person being deported. Um, they've sort of discussed they want to now extend all of this to just all overstayers anybody without leave to remain could potentially have a similar system where they are removed from the UK first and can only challenge that later, but practically that's going to be very difficult to implement. I think so, yeah. I mean, obviously they are tinkering a lot with the appeal system at the moment, um, hugely restricting the different grounds of appeal that you can have and introducing a system of administrative review in place of appeal in a huge number of cases. Um, so it's... Um, it is difficult to see exactly how that would work practically, kind of removing appeal rights from all overstayers. Um, I think on a personal level, the thing that kind of concerns me about all those types of policies is that it just completely dehumanises the debate. Mm -hmm. You know, as soon as you start talking about people as illegals and overstayers, etc., you forget that they are they are people and they have families and there are quite often children involved in those families and there is nothing wrong with putting the interests of those people no, and quite often, uh, yeah, and, and quite often where these cases are successful, it's not necessarily due to the personal circumstances of of the migrants. It's often due to the circumstances of family members who hold leave to remain or are about British citizens. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, the, I suppose the case that's constantly wheeled out is Theresa May's famous. I kid you not. They had the a cat, cat. Um, <laughs> which you know anyone who works in the industry will know is just simply not what happened. But things like that, you know, they kind of they they grab headlines and they grab attention from people and they. They do sort of make the general public, I think, believe that it doesn't matter what you've done or, you know, the impact of what you've done has had on the UK. Or as soon as you start shouting human rights, you'll be allowed to live here. And that just simply isn't the case. So No, I mean, the one thing that the Conservatives say a lot is that people need to start remembering that Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights, the right to a private and family life, is not an unqualified right. But even the law itself is very clear that the right to private and family life is not an absolute one. And there are many circumstances in which it will be proportionate to remove someone in the UK, despite them having established a private and family life. Yeah, absolutely, you know, we see it unhappily often. Um, and we're now going to be going to Gemma, who's going to discuss the Labour Party's approach to immigration. Thank you very much, Alex. So Labour claimed that they want to properly control and manage immigration in the UK. They seem to understand that they may have got things wrong in the past and they base their arguments really on the fact that since David Cameron has walked into um, number 10, net migration has actually risen. 
despite what his intentions were. Because they were talking about getting it down from, it was about 252,000 when they took office. And they wanted to reduce it to the, the tens of thousands. thousands. Yeah, I mean, it is actually now, most recently, being quoted at 260,000. So a slight increase. Yeah. Um, so Labour claims that their policies in relation to immigration will include stronger border controls, which will include them attempting to make it easier to deport foreign criminals from the UK. Personally, I don't know how they will make it any easier, particularly <laughs> for, um, especially if you have a custodial sentence of four years or more. I mean, my experience of them cases that they are very difficult and it is extremely difficult to challenge deportation. Yeah, especially since the changes to the appeals yeah. process. Yeah. So what's the way, if it's, if it's a sentence of over four years, and it, what's that wording for? Very. Very exceptional circumstances yeah. above and beyond. Effectively, you need to show that it would be more than unduly harsh yeah. to your family members. But again, what's is, more than unduly harsh? I was going to say, which is an odd concept in itself. But, yeah. Um, hmm. No idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, they further claim in, in relation to border controls that they are going to check people in and out of the country, which is actually something that has very recently come, in, come into force. Is it, is it this week they started doing yeah, the, board, the exit yeah. checks for the first time in a long time? Yeah. Um, and they, are, they claim that they will do more to stop illegal immigration. They also claim that they want to incorporate a, system, a smarter system of controls in the UK so that the UK can encourage top talent and investment to come here but controlling low-skilled migration in the UK. Um, I mean, the points-based system is already in force and that enables entrepreneurs, investors, tier two skilled workers to come to the UK. So I'm not entirely sure if they intend to change that in any way. No, and we also lost um, over the past few years sort of the tier one general visa, which was yeah. for sort of anyone with, um, was it, was it sort of degree level qualifications who could come Certainly. over and sort of have a go? Yeah, yeah. Um, they also claim that they want fair rules at work. So essentially a new law to prevent employers undercutting wages by exploiting immigration and also banning agencies from recruiting workers only from abroad. It is worth noting that we, we did actually get some stats from the Migration Advisory Committee. These were taken in July 2014 and considered the low rate of pay in the UK. It is claimed that 236,000 workers in the UK are paid less than the minimum wage here, with only 11.3% of those being migrant workers. So I'm not entirely sure what the what Labour intend to incorporate in relation to establishing these fair rules at work, especially when the majority of, of workers mm -hmm. who are receiving less than the minimum wage are already either British it, 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 it does sound, to be fair, like a, a little bit like scapegoating when it's yeah. sort of about 89% of the people who are actually affected by this aren't migrant workers. It, it seems sort of unduly harsh to be coming in with new legislation 
specifically attacking the uh, the eleven percent. I mean, it, certainly, if you watched um, the leaders' debate, etc., you know, one of the big things that you could like to talk about is about how migrant workers are, are used exactly that that terminology yeah. to undercut British workers, and figures like this indicate that that just simply isn't the case. And also, I think in, in the news today, we've been talking about it's, it's skill shortages that are driving up wages and the need to mm. have more skilled people. And it, it, it seems sort of bizarre that you're coming at it from this way when it seems the UK, if anything, needs more people with more skills coming in. And they also claim that people who will be coming to the UK won't be able to claim benefits for at least two years. I mean, this is quite significant, I think, with Labour's policy. I know that quite a lot of people in the UK aren't, aren't necessarily against immigration, or lawful immigration to the UK, um, and benefits here, as, as you are probably aware, receive quite a lot of bad press. It's very, very divisive. Very, yeah. And then finally, they they want to integrate the community and not, not divide it, um, and claim that people working in public services particularly those in public-facing roles, will be required to speak English. Personally, I haven't come across anyone in a public-facing role who doesn't speak English. And also, speaking English language to a minimum level is a requirement for virtually every... Every category, under the rules. Yeah, unless you are a child, a pensioner, or have a mental or physical difficulty that means you can't learn a language, everyone coming into the UK from outside the European Union has to have a level of, of the ability to speak and listen to the English language. So it does seem, you're quite right, that this is, I'm not quite sure why they're putting it in there, it already seems it seems fairly redundant a point to make. Yeah, it does. Okay, uh, we're going to move on to, to um, the, the Liberal Democrats, the junior partners in the coalition, which I'll be talking about. Um, the Lib Dems, um, their actual immigration policy on their website, I must admit, is, is, is very minimal. It talks about Britain being open and welcoming, it talks about the benefits of immigration, the fact that Labour get things, let, let things get out of control, but it doesn't really say a huge amount about what they want to do to change things. Um, one of the things they do mention specifically is they want to again introduce the exit checks, which have already happened, uh, which are already in place as of this week. They started bringing them in. Um, another one is sort of rebuilding trust in the system. Um, they mention having cut immigration by a third since they came to office. And I was, again, having a look at the statistics on this. And I know we keep talking about this figure of sort of 260-odd thousand, um, and there were arguments sort of late um, last year that net migration for 2014 was going up to almost 300,000. So their argument they've managed to cut immigration significantly um, does seem to be a little bit outdated. I mean, there was a lull looking at figures between 2012 and 2013, but it seems that things are generally back up to... Uh, either a bit higher or higher than they were than before they took office. Another thing the Liberal Democrats want to do is they want to take students out of the net migration figures, which is probably a very good idea considering what a high proportion of the net migration figures are taken up by students. And Shara, you have some figures on that. Yeah, um, just looking at figures that sort of took us up to the middle of last year, it was 177,000 were students. Annually. So that's, that's the overwhelming so majority it's of immigration. It's a huge proportion of immigration is made up with students and the whole point about the student route is that there is no actual link to settlement there unless you're a student who can, one way or the other, either get into a settlement route or to stay lawfully in the UK for 10 years, which you cannot do as a student alone, then you will not be remaining in the UK. So it does seem slightly false to record students in with the net migration figure when they're just not necessarily going to be a permanent 
fixture. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> yeah, so if you take them out, then you come much closer to the Conservatives reaching their targets. Yeah. And things maybe look a little bit more realistic. And I think most people don't have a problem with students coming here because they recognise just how much students contribute to the economy and how extortionate, in some cases, international student fees are. I think people generally review students who come to the UK as a benefit. Another thing the Liberal Democrats have mentioned is wanting to end the practice of routinely detaining children for the purpose of immigration. Obviously, um, the Home Office has a broad um, ability to detain people who are in the UK illegally. Um, according to an article from The Independent this January, more than 600 children, most of whom are under 12 years old, have been put in detention under the immigration rules during the years the Coalition have been in power and having claimed to have ended this practice. Um, we're also looking at a number of children being held increasing from 127 in 2011 to 228 in 2013. So whilst the Liberal Democrats have taken some steps to end child detention and the numbers are reducing, it's far from a practice that seems to have actually ended. Okay, so now we're on to UKIP. Um, this is going to be interesting and Shara is going to be discussing this. Yeah, thanks. So um, UKIP, I guess if you had to just put them into a sound pipe, uh, a sound pipe. <laughs> you know, one of those sound pipes. One of those pipes full of sound. No, those kids. Those kids <laughs> always playing with. Okay, let's start that again. Oh, no, I'm totally leaving that in. <laughs> um, so if you had to put UKIP's policies into a soundbite, then basically cut ties close down, effectively. So UKIP recognises the benefits of limited and controlled immigration Allegedly, what do they consider controlled immigration? I'm not to be? sure, and I'm not sure exactly at what point they think it's a benefit because I'm yet to see anything really from UKIP that talks about immigration in a beneficial way. Um, the figures have been saying what about well, they want normalized migration of around what 30 to 50,000, yeah. Which, even if you take the students out of those figures, is just it's a, a very long way off. Really low, absolutely, really low, completely. Um, so some of the things that they want to do is take things like the existing points-based system which applies to all non-EEA migrants at the moment who want to come here as students or as workers or as high net worth individuals, UKIP will extend that to include EU citizens as well. So effectively they will end free movement for European nationals. And the way that they do that is by leaving the EU, leaving the EEA, um, breaking all of those links that we have there. UKIP make a lot of kind of big claims in terms of what yeah. they're going to do. Uh, the practicalities of that and even the legalities of that and sometimes are, are questionable, I think, but this is effectively where they want to be heading. Um, some of the biggest things, I think, are the idea that they will repeal the Human Rights Act, they will withdraw from the jurisdiction of the European Court of Human Rights. Apparently, we're going to get a Bill of Rights, a UK Bill of Rights. Um, Which will include the right to have cigarettes and I'm not and, sure. I, I, no. don't, I don't know what a Bill of Rights under UKIP would look like, if I'm honest. Um, but one of the things that I found quite interesting when I was looking on the UKIP... Well, <laughs> there are many things I found interesting looking on the UKIP site, but one of the, <laughs> one of the things that caught my eye for the purpose of this podcast um, was the idea that they, they would like to give people the ability to discriminate in favour of British workers. And... It's just interesting to try to work out what that looks like in real terms because if you're an employer and you want to advertise for a position right now, you will, I would imagine, probably get applicants from a number of different backgrounds, they may well be from a number of different countries, etc. and you choose the person that you think is best for that role. Mm -hmm. Discriminating in favour of British workers is what exactly is it? Are we talking that we're going to be putting into job adverts? 
must can, be British. You can only apply if you're mm. British because I think it's things like that, um, those kinds of examples that really demonstrate just how kind of pervasive and, and toxic UKIP can really be because things like that really hark back to the kind of no blacks, no Irish signs of you know, kind of our parents and our grandparents' generation is not where a progressive UK society really should be going. And I think the danger of UKIP is that they have a lot of policies which kind of in theory it makes it sound like oh yeah that sounds reasonable i mean you know migrants are only eligible for benefits when they've been paying tax and national insurance for five years if you say that to a lot of people on the street right now who are struggling under an austerity conservative government that might sound like a really good idea but in practice if you've got someone who's come here and they've worked really hard for four and a half years and they lose their job they lose their job you know times get hard and they lose their job what are we saying that we don't we don't value those people as people that they will that's it get out you may have been here for four and a half years your kids might be in school but you're not entitled to anything and it's just the frustration i have on a personal level with the major political parties and sort of what what Gemma was talking about you know in terms of the the kind of caps that that labor are talking about is that it's almost pandering to a ukip audience but it fails to address the fact that a lot of the things that they're suggesting just are, are either not practical or are simply just kind of discriminatory with nothing really to back it up and yeah. pandering to that rather than attacking it head on which you'll probably be talking about a bit in um Plaid Cymru. and when we talk about the greens it is in my view, a better way to try to deal with that. I mean, a lot of what UKIP seems to do is taking existing policies and essentially sort of bolting bits to it to make them yeah. seem more intimidating. Because when you're talking about that uh, that issue of only being able to hire, being able to prefer British workers, we already have a system where if you want to hire somebody from outside of the EU, you have to advertise that job for a full month yeah, before absolutely. you can employ a foreign worker. The resident labour market yeah. test, absolutely, yeah, to, to try to make sure that people are not able to routinely um, offer jobs to people where the resident workforce in the UK would be able to fill that gap. So yeah, there is absolutely already measures in place and just the idea of, of discriminating in favour of British workers, like I say, you know, what, what does that look like really? Um, the other thing that I, sort of found, I found quite interesting was UKIP will reinstate the primary purpose rule yes. for bringing foreign spouses and children to the UK. So for those not in the know, the primary purpose rule um, used to apply to applications for family members where basically had to show that the primary purpose of your application was not for your family member to be able to gain British residency and it's just um it's just an odd thing to want to bring back I mean we already have a test for anyone bringing in a spouse that you have to demonstrate that you're in a genuine and subsisting relationship intend to live here together on a permanent basis and if that's not the same thing So it's it's an odd it's just an odd one to want to bring back in. It's another example where kind of you know you say that and you say that to you know the average person on the street. This should be the primary purpose. The primary purpose should be because you want to you want to live with your spouse, not because your spouse wants to live in the UK. Absolutely, that makes perfect sense. But practicalities of that, what do you mean? (laughs) You know, what's that test going to look like? What are you going to expect from people to prove that? that they meet that rule exactly. We're going to start seeing a system where they interview them before they come in, like we see with some students, and then again, how would that be objective? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, we're going to be moving on to um, the last party we're going to be discussing in detail, which is Plaid Cymru, the Welsh Nationalist Party, who are actually, surprisingly, um, I hadn't really looked into their policies in detail before doing the research for this, but they are very, very progressive, and they are going back to a lot of policies that sort of reinstate the importance of human rights and as I would say broadly pro-migrant. One of the ones that is is most significant, um, in 2012, the current government changed the rules so that if you wanted to bring a spouse into the UK, you had to demonstrate access to a minimum income 
of £18,600 and that would increase with every child you wanted to bring in as well. That was a massively controversial change that's been, that was challenged, overturned, appealed again, still in force, and it's still going through the court system. We don't know ultimately how that one's going to end up, but that's resulted in um, a lot of protests, a lot of, um, a lot of discussion online and press as to whether that rule is appropriate or fair, and certain senior figures, even within the Liberal, Liberal Democrats, have sort of been questioning whether or not um, that level of income is appropriate because it used to be the test would be would you earn more than you would get on income support so as long as you could show you weren't going to be reliant on public funds you could bring in a family member as long as you could show your relationship was genuine um, and Plaid Cymru are, are the, the only major political party I can see from their websites who wants to um, support an independent review of this minimum income threshold and try and bring it back to a point where um, anyone with a stable and reasonable income could be in a position to bring in family members to the UK which is essentially going back to the position we were in before July 2012, which I know uh, a lot of people would like to see us going back to. Another thing they want to bring back from the past is the old post-study work visa. It used to be that students could, after their degrees, get essentially a two-year work visa in which they could take jobs in the UK, establish themselves here and try and, uh, try and contribute. At present, students only have a limited amount of time after their degrees to move on to another route in the UK if they can get an offer of employment at degree level or above. But they specifically want to introduce the post-study work visa for Wales and people who are qualifying from Welsh universities to enable them to graduate from a Welsh university and then try and get their skills um, to contribute to the Welsh economy and get a job in that country. So it's quite interesting. They're looking at their specific needs as a country and using that as a route to increase the number of migrants coming to Wales and also staying there for jobs. And I can imagine if that route was, was open, it would make some Tier 4 students genuinely look at... Uh, entering Wales and going to a Welsh university as opposed to other parts of the UK. Yeah, I definitely agree with that, Alex. Sorry to jump, no, jump in there. But, um, you know, the, when they took away the post-study work route, it was it was a shame because mm. it was a, a really hugely attractive feature of coming to study in the UK was the opportunity that you could put those skills that you gained in a UK university to practice in the UK and get that, that experience and take that knowledge and experience home with you or alternatively if you were able to kind of land the, the dream job or start the dream business whatever then you'd be able to stay here and there was nothing wrong with that as a concept. Without doubt there was some instances of people who did not use post-study work route for that purpose and you would find that there would be individuals who would graduate from university and go into lower skilled or lower paid jobs and that was not the intention of the route but in terms of real genuine immigration abuse it's difficult to see how tier one post-study work really contributed much to that because no. You still couldn't claim benefits or anything like that. So it's not like people were kind of drawing out of the system on tier one post-study work. So it, it, it is difficult to see how that was contributing to some of the apparent issues and things like benefits, tourism, etc., etc. And, and we did deal with a lot of students onto that route who were moving on into other routes into further employment. Yeah, who were using absolutely. that as a stepping stone to take yeah. them further into the system legally. I mean, particularly when you come to look at, at um, workers um, currently under Tier 2, there are measures that are in place under Tier 2 that make it slightly easier for you to be able to take on someone that's just graduated from a university so you don't have to conduct a resident labour market test, etc. But there is still, obviously, the requirement to apply for the visa, to get the visa. Sponsorship is a big undertaking, and it, it, it is obviously discouraging 
for an employer who meets a graduate who looks like they may well be promising to think, well, I'd like to maybe give this person a go on a short-term contract, but to do that, I need to get a license, I need to assign them with a certificate of sponsorship, I need to meet all the requirements for minimum salary and skill levels that are under tier two that are vastly different to what they would be in, you know, in the open yeah. market. And it's, it's a shame that those kind of restrictions are there now, which you know, possibly prevent us from actually getting the benefit from our our migrant students other than the huge fees that we're charging them to go to university or college here. Um, and moving on from that, another uh, policy that is, again, quite a progressive one for Unplugged Cymru is making Wales a country of sanctuary. Um, in light of a lot of events in, in the Middle East over the past few years, particularly um, in Syria and the rise of ISIS, there have been a huge number of asylum seekers who have been um, displaced who are in various countries looking for sanctuary. And the UK has been so far incredibly poor at providing places for these people or offering to take a percentage of displaced persons and granting them any kind of refuge in the UK. In um, 2014, for example, the UK took in a grand total of 143 Syrian refugees, when if you consider just how many people have been displaced, that's a tiny, tiny percentage. Whereas comparatively, um, in 2014, Germany took in around 20,000 and Sweden took in about 9,000. So another thing that Padcom we want to do is to try and make Wales a more hospitable country for asylum seekers to allow them to come in and claim asylum there and live up to um, international obligation, obli- international obligations in line with the majority of other countries in Europe. Um, does anybody want to mention anything about the Greens at all? Yeah, yeah let's. Let's, let's talk about the Greens. Have a quick talk about the Greens. So, I mean, it kind of follows on quite nicely, really, I think, Alex, from what you talked about with Plug Camarie, because uh, certainly if you if you watch the leaders' debate, um, I think it was pretty obvious that there was quite a lot of cohesion when it comes to immigration between the Plug Camarie approach and the Green approach. And if you see their, frankly, epic oh. <laughs> video, um, which is their party political broadcast. Yeah, if you've not seen the Green Party political broadcast yet, <laughs> stop listening to this and go and, go and look it up on YouTube immediately. Uh, you know, they, they do have a real focus on recognising that there is a real benefit to, my, to uh, migration and to immigration and, you know, the idea about closing our borders is just never going to be beneficial to the UK as a whole. So the Greens are certainly more progressive, as they are in, you know, many different areas. They mm-hmm. are more progressive, obviously, than the kind of really kind of core mainstream political parties. Um, but... But yeah, they don't have a hugely kind of documented and explicit policy in relation to immigration in terms of measures that they will introduce. No, I mean, I just, uh, looking on the website, I could find plenty of sort of policy documents they discussed mm. and plenty of things that party members have brought up that were, to be frank, more in line with, with the approach of Pat Cymru. But they didn't have a specific section on their, on, on, on their website that said exactly what it was they intended to do or specifically what their policies would be in the event of getting into government which I assume is because obviously they don't necessarily realistically believe yeah. they will be in that position. But it would be interesting to see how that area develops for them in the future, considering they are growing certainly yeah, in supporting yeah. membership numbers. Okay, no problem. Well, I'd like to thank my colleagues for their time and their contributions. Um, if you want to contact Latitude Law for any assistance, our phone number is 0161 234 Our website is latitudelaw.com. You can leave inquiries with us on our website or via email at info at And if you've got any questions that you would like answered on next month's podcast, you can use at Latitude Law on Twitter and we'll get back to you and try and include stuff. Next month, we are going to be talking about uh, bringing in family members to the UK with this particular focus on bringing in your fiancé or spouse. We touched on it in the podcast earlier that this is a route that's become much more challenging over recent years. And a lot of people, um, there are some pitfalls 
Uh, evidentially, people do, do make mistakes. So if there's anything you want to ask about that and you want any of us to raise any of those issues, please drop us a line. Okay, thank you very much and goodbye.